Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Stephen Pimper, a host of the Public Policy Channel, and we are joined today by Rebecca S. Natow, who's the author of Reexamining the Federal Role in Higher Education, Politics and Policymaking in the Post-Secondary Sector from Teachers College Press. Rebecca, welcome. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Um, so if you would start us off, uh, tell our listeners just a little bit about who you are and what brought you to this particular project, if you would. Of course. Um, well, I am an assistant professor of educational leadership and policy at Hofstra University in Long Island, New York. Um, I'm also the program director for our higher education leadership and policy studies program. And the reason that I wrote this book is because as a faculty member in a higher education graduate program, I teach a course on public policy in higher education. Um, And a couple of years ago, I was looking for a book that explains the federal government's role in higher education, that really focuses on the federal role specifically, explains where the federal authority to regulate higher education comes from, and all of the important implications of federal policy for higher education. And I couldn't find a book like that. Um, there were there were some books written about 20 years ago on um, previous um, decades, higher education policy landscape, but things are very different now. And I wanted something that was, that was more up to date, wasn't able to find it. So I decided to write the book. Um, uh, federal policy is something I've been um, researching for quite some time. I had written my dissertation on the Department of Education's rulemaking process for higher education. And um, so it was something that I'm familiar with. I also have a background in law. Um, I have a JD in addition to my doctorate in education. So I felt like I was uniquely um, qualified to write about the uh, constitutional authority for the federal government to regulate higher education. So the more I thought about it, the more I decided this is something that we really need in higher ed. And I decided to write this book. Excellent. Uh, It's funny how often that happens, right? We go out looking for something and we can't find it. So it's like, well, shoot, I'm going to have to write it, aren't I? (laughs) (laughs) That's right. That's right. Um, so uh, the way you set up the book is you, you lay out sort of three three questions that guide your analysis. One is an inquiry into how the actual structure of U.S. institutions has itself affected the way in which our higher education policy plays out. Uh, attention to the ways in which uh, all of those kinds of things and the policies itself have changed over time. And then finally, what it is that in the contemporary period, people think are still the most important issues that confront 
uh, uh, higher ed. So why don't we take those in turn, if you would. Tell us just a little bit about um, how it is that you think that the very peculiar nature of the U.S. constitutional system and the way that it's evolved over time helps us understand higher ed policy. Yes. Well, that is a great way of putting it. And it's it's interesting because I think um, we, we get so used to the way our, our government works sometimes that we don't really think about how peculiar it actually is. Um, if you look at the text of the Constitution, you won't see the word education anywhere in the text. Um, and of course, the Tenth Amendment says that any any powers, any authorities that aren't granted to the federal government by the Constitution will be reserved either for the states or for um, the, the people. So oftentimes education and higher education are thought of as a state and local matter, and that is largely true. Obviously, it's um, state governments that establish public institutions of higher education. They authorize institutions to be able to operate within their state borders. Um, public institutions receive a great deal of, of state funding in the form of public appropriations. So higher education really is largely a matter for state governments. But we also know that the federal government plays a very large role in higher education. There's a U.S. Department of Education that um, issues regulations and guidance and, and adjudications regularly um, of higher education institutions regulating, for example, student financial aid funding, which is incredibly important for students to be able to afford college. And there's all kinds of other federal laws. There's the Higher Education Act. There's FERPA, the Family Educational Rights and Privacy Act, the Cleary Act. These are all federal policies that affect higher education directly. So where does that authority come from? Well, primarily it comes from the federal government's ability to spend federal dollars, to spend federal funds. Because higher education institutions and students are so dependent on federal funds for things like being able to afford college through the federal financial aid programs, the Pell Grant, um, student federal student loans, for example, work-study programs, the federal government is allowed to attach conditions to the receipt of federal funding. So that is where the lion's share of federal regulations come from. Come, it comes from the federal government saying, okay, institutions, you're going to accept this funding from us. And as a result, you have to also abide all of these conditions. So that's the, that's the primary mechanism that the federal government uses to regulate higher education. But it's not the only one. The federal government also has the, the power to enforce civil rights, for example, through the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause. So that enables the federal government to enact civil rights uh, legislation and, and civil rights rules that are going to impact institutions of higher education. There's also uh, intellectual property rights that comes directly from the Constitution, the right to, to regulate patents and copyrights, for example. Higher education institutions obviously have a lot to do with intellectual property. They employ researchers and, and faculty who, who write works and create inventions that are governed by federal copyright and, and patent laws. Um, so that's another avenue for the federal government to regulate uh, higher education. And another power for, of the federal government that's become increasingly important in recent years is executive action. So this is the power of the president mainly and also executive branch agencies. Um, to issue rules and regulations and policies that basically run the executive branch. But again, through the conditional spending power, this gives the, the president and the Department of Education a lot of power to regulate higher education because the federal government has the right to attach conditions to the receipt of federal funding. So, for example, if the Department of Education is issuing regulations that have to do with student financial aid programs, 
their authority to, um, uh, to, to issue rules that govern the conditions under which the institutions will receive those funds comes from the federal government's power to spend, to spend federal money. So um, it all mostly goes back to the spending power, but it ends up being an enormous power over higher education because of how dependent students and institutions have become on those federal dollars. So while we're here sort of talking about institutional locale of, of federal involvement in higher education in the U.S., uh, what should we know about the role that federal courts have played and do play? Mm, yes. So federal courts have played an, uh, an important role over time. Often people don't think of the federal courts as policymakers. And it's true that courts um, can't proactively issue policy the way that the president can through executive action or that Congress can through legislation. Courts have to wait for a case or controversy to come to them. But once it does, the federal courts have enormous power because through the power of judicial review, the judicial branch basically has the final say, and especially the Supreme Court as the most um, superior court in the, in the country, has the final say on what the Constitution says about Um, particular policies, acts of Congress and acts of state government. So over the years, the federal courts have been um, very powerful in terms of, for example, enforcing civil rights, um, desegregating schools and colleges. Um, And more recently, we've heard a lot about uh, race-conscious college admissions policies. In fact, the Supreme Court recently announced it will be taking up a a case um, this term to revisit the issue of of the constitutionality of race-conscious college admissions policies. Um, Another area where the federal courts have had a lot of influence has been overseeing that executive action, uh, determining whether the executive branch, for example, the Department of Education, has overstepped its authority in regulating. Um, So during the Obama administration, for example, the Department of Education issued a gainful employment rule, which was mostly targeted at for-profit higher education institutions, although there were also some non-profit profit and public institutions that um, were subject to some of those regulations. But it was a very controversial regulation, basically um, saying that these programs have to provide students uh, with an education um, that will make it so they can be gainfully employed in their careers. Um, and to the extent that institutions aren't doing that, the Department of Education was going to investigate them and perhaps rein in their eligibility to receive federal student financial aid um, dollars. So what happened was the for-profit higher education sector filed a lawsuit arguing that the Department of Education overstepped its authority. It didn't follow the appropriate administrative procedures in issuing that rule. And what happened was a federal court in Washington, D.C. agreed with um, with the the for-profit sector in that case and and basically nullified an important component of the gainful employment rule. And what happened was the Obama administration had to go through the whole rulemaking process again to issue another gainful employment rule. So in my research, that's something that the policy actors who I spoke with pointed out as a very important rule of the federal courts because we're seeing so much policymaking through executive action and the courts can determine whether the executive branch is appropriately acting in issuing those rules. That gives the courts a lot of power as well. Um, matter for another time, but of course, given the current Roberts Court's uh, uh, increasingly apparent willingness to challenge the ability of Congress to delegate that kind of rulemaking and administrative authority to the executive branch, we may see some radical changes coming at us in the future, I, I suspect, yes? 
I agree. And I think um, it's also that will also be um, the, the, the Roberts court will also be a factor in what happens with uh, the race conscious college admissions case that's yeah. going to be coming up. I mean, there's soon. arguably given how many times they've visited similar kinds of questions, there's arguably no reason for them to be taking this case unless they intend to strike down those policies. Right. That is what uh, court watchers are saying. So um, only time will tell. But uh, that is what experts who watch the Supreme Court are thinking right at this moment. So. Uh, so add that to your list, folks, of things to be worried about for the future. Um, so uh, so why don't we move from, from, from worrying about the future to looking a little bit at the past? So, so you, one of the things that I appreciate very much is, is sort of the way that you walk back the history of the federal government's involvement in higher education, literally all the way back to the 18th century. Um, so I wonder if you might, obviously we can't in our time recount all of that history, but what do you think are some of the sort of the key milestones as we think Think about the evolution and development of the federal government's role. What are the things that you think we should be paying attention to, or that think people will find most important or interesting? Yes, well, that's a, that's an excellent question, and it's interesting. Even though the Constitution doesn't say anything about education, there was uh, federal higher education policymaking as far back as two years before the Constitution was ratified in 1787 with the Northwest Ordinance. Uh, which, among other things, set aside land for the purpose of developing schools and, and higher education institutions. So from the earliest days of the United States, there was higher education policymaking at the federal level. Um, through the end of the 18th century and the early 19th century, we didn't see a lot of federal higher education policymaking, although it was, it was certainly present. But then around the Civil War, that was when we saw the passage of the first Morrill Land Grant Act in 1862. So through this act, the federal government designated land uh, for the purpose of states obtaining funding from the sale or other use of that land to develop one or more higher education institutions in each state. And these land grant institutions would be dedicated to the study of agriculture, mechanics, and military studies, as well as arts and sciences. Um, There's a report that was um, put out in High Country News in 2020 by Lee and Atone, which I highly recommend. It's called Land, Land Grab Universities, which talks about how um, the federal government used um, expropriated land from Native Americans for very little or in some cases no compensation to develop those land grant institutions. Um, so that's, that is one way that higher education has been involved with um, um, the unfortunate history of the federal government in expropriating land from uh, Native Americans. But the Land Grant Act was um, a turning point in the sense that that's where um, the federal government um, started to become much more involved in higher education. And then we saw another land, another moral land grant act passed in 1890. And this this act was aimed particularly at Southern states that had seceded prior to the Civil War and provided states with funding for the purpose of creating new land-grant institutions that would be dedicated to serving Black Americans in higher education. And this produced um, 19 land-grant institutions, which are now designated as historically Black colleges and universities. So during the late 19th and early 20th century, we saw some, again, uh, minor, minor involvement of the federal government in higher education. For example, the Student Army Training Corps was a partnership between higher education institutions and the U.S. Army. Um, And then we get to the the Great Depression and New Deal era. What's interesting about that era is this was obviously a time of great federal expansion um, during uh, Franklin Roosevelt's presidency. 
And higher education was involved, but it wasn't really front and center in the um, in the in the New Deal policies. We do see public works projects at, at various colleges and universities across the country, and some early forms of work study program. Um, work-study programs, for example, with the National Youth Administration, which provided part-time jobs for students to help them pay for college. Um, But it wasn't, higher education was not front and center of Franklin Roosevelt's New Deal. Then we come up to the middle of the 20th century, and this is where the federal role in higher education really took hold. Um, During World War II, um, first of all, institutions were engaged in research, which was very important to the war effort. But in addition to that, uh, towards the end of the war, federal policymakers were concerned about what was going to happen with the veterans who were returning from the war. And this was when the GI Bill uh, was enacted. So the GI Bill was a whole suite of, of policies designed to help veterans who had returned from World War II. And it included, in addition to the educational aid, Um, housing benefits and and unemployment insurance. But the educational aid was key to really expanding enrollments and growth in higher education around the middle of the 20th century, and also um, making the institutions a bit more dependent on that federal funding. So the federal funding that came in from um, the GI Bill helped the institutions to grow their enrollments and expand, but it also created... um, it created this uh, relationship where the where the institutions were going to become increasingly dependent on those federal dollars, and that opens up the door to a lot of federal regulation. After World War II, there was the Cold War era, and this was another period of growth for higher education because when the Soviet Union, for example, launched the Sputnik satellite, um, there was a sentiment that maybe the United States was falling behind in terms of um, research and development, um, scientific innovation and the space race, and this all had implications for national defense. So there was a lot of federal funding at that point going into um, higher education for research purposes. There was also in the late 1950s, the National Defense Education Act, which provided a lot of funding for education programs, um, basically all across the spectrum from kindergarten through postgraduate programs, um, mostly for science and other fields that were deemed um, a necessary investment in national defense, uh, foreign languages, international studies, um, mathematics, for example. Um, And there was a a low interest student loan program, which would later become the Perkins loan, which was a a student loan to pay, help people pay for college. And this would foreshadow the current model that we have, um, which is of course, students and their families taking out loans to pay for higher education. We get to the 1960s during President Lyndon Johnson's um, administration, and here we do see education become front and center in the in the policies in um, Johnson's Great Society policies. This included the Higher Education Act of 1965, which, among other things, established the federal student financial aid programs, which have become um, enormously important. It only became those programs only became more important as time went on and as college became increasingly expensive. So remember, because the federal government's authority to regulate higher education comes largely from attaching conditions to the receipt of federal funding. Once the Higher Education Act was passed and students were using financial aid increasingly more to pay for college, the institutions became heavily dependent on those federal dollars, and that opened the door to a lot of regulation of higher education at the federal level. Um, so 
That brings us about to 1965. Since then, we've had a lot of federal policies enacted. I'm thinking of Title IX of the Education Amendments of 1972. There's FERPA, which is, again, the um, Family Educational Rights and Privacy Act governing student records and privacy. There's the Cleary Act, which handles um, reporting of um, crime occurring on or near campus. There's other civil rights policies that apply broadly to higher education and, of course, a lot of other um, organizations such as the Civil Rights Act, the Rehabilitation Act, which prohibits disability discrimination, the Americans with Disabilities Act, um, and on and on and on. So there's been a lot of federal policies since the middle of the 20th century that have affected higher education and continue to do so. And then finally, we get to our current era in higher education, which really started around the 1970s and, and continues through today, which is what I call the era of accountability. Um, this era occurred as higher education um, just got an increasingly higher price tag for students to attend. Higher education also became increasingly important to obtain jobs and upward social mobility um, and for people's earnings potential. And there was also a uh, sort of a sentiment, a political national mood um, that was becoming increasingly skeptical about uh, public agencies and the use of taxpayer dollars for things like higher education, which were increasingly viewed as a private benefit rather than a public good. So in this era, we see higher education increasing um, increasing in its accountability requirements to the federal government and to state governments as well. At the federal level, for example, we saw in 1992's reauthorization of the Higher Education Act, a strengthened role for states and accreditors with regard to oversight of higher education. Um, during the Obama administration, as I mentioned, there was the gainful employment rule, taking a closer look at career-based higher education programs, often in the for-profit sector. Um, and we still have these conversations today. There's uh, rulemaking going on right now. Um, there was a negotiated rulemaking session in the Department of Education just last week um, looking at these issues of accountability uh, with regard to federal student loan programs. So that's an, that is an era that currently exists, the era of accountability and oversight. Um, that I, I have to say, that's that's one of the most Im impressive, concise, and comprehensive overviews of any large chunk of history I've heard in a very long time. <laughs> well, thank <laughs> you. Nicely done, indeed. Um, so, um, so let's talk a little bit of, uh, about the present. So, in addition to the archival and primary and secondary uh, uh, data sources you investigated, you also spoke to a number of people positioned in various positions throughout the federal government. Tell us a yes. little bit about who you talked to, and then, if you would, let's finish up by by sharing with us what it is that they had to say mm -hmm. about the things that they're paying attention to right now and the things that they think are important. Yes. Well, um, in addition, as you mentioned, in addition to all the documents and literature and reports that I analyzed, I spoke with 28 individuals who are policy actors um, active within the federal higher education policy arena. Um, these included people who, who currently or, or in the past had worked for the federal government in various roles, whether as congressional staff, White House staff in one of the federal agencies, and also people who work sort of around the federal government in policy conversations, such as for the higher education associations that do a lot of federal policy work and lobbying in Washington, D.C., um, and other policy observers and consultants, people whose, um, whose work has brought them into 
um, contact with the federal government and who have a lot of that background insider information that's not going to be apparent in um, in documents that in the documents that I was reading. I also conducted a study a few years ago on how research is used in the higher education rulemaking process that takes place in the U.S. Department of Education. I had interviewed 34 participants in that study, and those were individuals, again, um, policy actors within the federal higher education policy community, but that previous study was mostly focused on the Department of Education's rulemaking process. Even still, they had spoken a lot about the federal government's role in higher education more broadly, so I did have some data from that previous study that I was able to pull into uh, this this book as well. Um, And so what these individuals told me about some of the key areas of importance for higher education right now. First of all, again, they emphasized the importance of executive action. Um, we're seeing right now um, how how difficult it has been for President Biden to get his economic agenda through Congress. And um, on paper, he should be able to do this. Uh, Biden, of course, is a Democrat, and the Democrats right now control both houses of Congress, although the margin of control in the Senate is very slim. It's a 50-50 split. And the reason the Democrats have control is because uh, Vice President Kamala Harris has that tie-breaking vote um, uh, in the Senate. So it's a very slim majority. And what we're seeing is because of the rules of the Senate, particularly the filibuster rule, it's very difficult to get any sort of legislation passed through Congress that's not going to have Um, bipartisan support, or at least the support of some of the more conservative Democrats. So this has been the case for a while now. We haven't had a reauthorization of the Higher Education Act since 2008. It's actually way past due for reauthorization. And those programs are continuing by getting um, appropriations um, on on an annual basis from from Congress. But we haven't had um, a comprehensive reauthorization from some time. Some of the people I interviewed for this research have said they think it's going to be a long time, if ever, before we see another um, comprehensive uh, reauthorization of the Higher Education Act. But it really illustrates the difficulty of, of getting anything through Congress these days. And as a result, a lot of policymaking is taking place in the executive branch. So there's a lot of um, concerns about that most particularly because the executive branch, aside from the president, um, is composed of people who are not elected by um, by popular election. The president and vice president, of course, are. But then the president gets to appoint the heads of the agencies um, and, and the president and agency heads appoint a lot of the um, other other personnel in the in the executive department. So they're only indirectly accountable to the voters. So that's one issue with with a lot of policymaking by executive action. Another issue with policymaking by executive action is that it changes quite rapidly when you have a new presidential administration come in, especially if you have a president um, of a different political party than the predecessor. So we saw, for example, from the Obama administration to the Trump administration and then again to the Biden administration, very rapid policy change within the U.S. Department of Education when it comes to, for example, Title IX or um for-profit higher education it makes it difficult for institutions to plan, um, and it does result in in rapid policy change back and forth. So that's another concern with a lot of policy making by executive action. But other things in terms of substantive issues that my respondents talked about in terms of importance for the federal government, by far and away the issue that was considered the most important for the foreseeable future are issues of affordability, um, because. College is becoming increasingly expensive, and the federal government has played this important role historically in helping students to afford college. 
So that opens up a lot of other issues, including issues around equity, who's going to have the ability to pay for higher education. Um, are they going to be able to attend institutions that will prepare them for gainful employment? And will they be able to pay back their student loans, for example, when they graduate? And that, of course, opens up issues of accountability as well. If institutions are taking these federal dollars, are they doing a good job with that? Are they actually preparing the students to get a job? Are they actually giving the students what they're claiming to give them, what they advertise when they enroll the students and take their tuition dollars and those federal student uh, financial aid funds. So those are the main issues. Affordability is, is the big one, but it does open up other issues relating to equity and accountability as well. So that's a perfect segue for a final question that I will ask. And I'll ask if you don't mind to put on your lawyer's hat for this one. Uh, there's an ongoing debate between sort of, of of segments of the Biden wing and segments of the Elizabeth Warren wing of the party debating whether the president has uh, executive authority to forgive student loans. And we could argue about what the amount is and what the law says. What's your read on that debate? Can President Biden, with the stroke of a pen, unilaterally wipe out student loan debt? Yeah. So that's an excellent question. And you're right. This has been at the forefront of a lot of policy debates in recent years. It was certainly a big issue in, in the 2020 presidential election. Um, what I do know is that the lawyers who have looked at this issue um, pretty closely, they believe that there is executive authority for um, loan forgiveness. Um, the president, for example, could issue an executive order that the Department of Education forgive a certain amount of um, federal student loans. So this is something that, again, people who have looked at this uh, particular legal issue more closely than I have um, believe is possible. Um, and we have seen the federal government forgive student loans. Just recently, for example, there was, a, um, there was some executive action taken with regard to the public student loan forgiveness program. And a lot of people who um, qualified for public student loan forgiveness and hadn't had it kick in up until this point um, are finding that their loans have been forgiven. So there is precedent for it. The um, borrower defense rule is another example of the federal government, the Department of Education, looking at uh, whether students have been misled or defrauded by their institutions. And if they do find that there has been some fraud, then the uh, Department of Education has the authority to grant uh, some debt relief there. So there's precedent for it. And lawyers who have looked at those legal issues um, have said that the, there there is executive, there is the executive power to, um, to issue that loan forgiveness. Now, I think it's a political question. Um, will President Biden want to issue that authority? And if so, by how much? Um, and of course, an, uh, the other political issue is um, to argue that maybe the president doesn't actually have the authority to do that. So it's, it's, there's a legal argument in favor of it. But again, until we see it happen, until we see maybe a legal challenge and have the federal courts take a look and issue an opinion about whether the president does have that kind of authority, we won't really know for sure. You are listening to the New Books Network, and we've been speaking today with Rebecca S. Natow about her new book, Reexamining the Federal Role in Higher Education, Politics and Policymaking in the Post-Secondary Sector, new out from Teachers College Press. Uh, Rebecca, thank you so much for joining us today. Much appreciated. Oh, thank you so much for having me on.